0: Hey, folks, I'm Dr. Kira Banks, and welcome to Raising Equity. Make sure to follow me across all my socials at Dr. Kira Banks. On today's episode, we get a peek into Hollywood. We learn about production and how racism and sexism have shaped the industry.
1: Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube.
0: Welcome to Raising Equity. I'm Dr. Kira Banks. And today we have with us a really exciting guest. I got a chance, and opportunity to work with this guest um, for a few years, and now I'm I'm excited to have her on the podcast. So let me tell you all about Julie Harris Oliver. She works with production companies and producers to address the lack of diversity and roll out data-driven, human-centered tools to foster equitable and inclusive spaces. She most recently served as the director of production equity and inclusion at Warner Brothers Discovery, where her mission was to make the company's film and TV sets the safest, most inclusive places to create in the world. After two decades in the entertainment industry, Julie realized that too often she was the only woman in the room where decisions were being made and she needed a platform for the change she wanted to make. So in 2016, she launched a podcasting company and produced six sessions of The Other 50%. A history of Hollywood, where she interviewed over 220 successful women of all backgrounds who work in entertainment and several brilliant gender equity experts. What started as an exploration of implicit bias in Hollywood quickly became an education in representation and inclusion. Julie's currently producing the fourth season of Catch a Break about getting your start in the industry while talking to brilliant practitioners, practitioners in all kinds of crew and studio positions. Prior to Julie's DEI work, she held executive positions at Greenslate, Entertainment Partners, and HBO after being a production auditor for the Walt Disney Company. She holds a BFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you again. Really happy to be with you. Um, and I'm I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. It's it's always fun when you when you have an opportunity to to work with someone, to know someone, and to have them on the podcast. So
1: Yes, the best.
0: So tell me a little bit about what led you to production. I mean, NYU's Tisch School, like MFA, right? Like, what led you to production?
1: Well, I was an acting major. And long before I graduated, I realized I was not going to be an actor and really didn't want to be an actor. Um, But I knew I did want to work in the business or in production. At the time, I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a director or choreographer or something like that. And then I I graduated. I spent a couple years after graduation trying to kind of find my place. I didn't really know where to start or what to do. And I I was on the phone with a friend of mine complaining about how I wasn't working in production yet. And he said, just go get a job. (laughs) And I was like, oh okay sounds simple i didn't really know where to look so i started calling production companies and lo and behold i got a job and uh i remember I, I walked in and i i was talking to uh who became my boss and my mentor and i said well i would like to be a director and he said okay i will make you a producer as long as you do my bookkeeping and i i didn't really hear that until about 10 years later how i was immediately shut down from being a director but I was so dazzled by the thought of being a producer. I was like, okay, sure, great, wonderful. And and how hard could bookkeeping be? And oddly, it so I produced commercials for a while, but then it really led into um, <clears throat> finance and production finance and accounting, which is the last place I expected to be after being an acting major.
0: This is interesting, let me just pause you there. So you didn't even realize he was shutting you down from directing and like rerouting no. you until later? And I'm assuming, I, just for folks who don't understand, because I had to get, I became a quick study of the industry. Being a director is a male-dominated position, right? Like we now know of the Ava DuVernay's and the, uh, you know, like we have an Issa Rae's and all of this this uh, power of women in directing and 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 producing positions. But I'd give people a little bit of a background. Like he was not having it. You were not going to be a director.
1: No, and and there was no malice about it. There were, it was just not even a question right. that a young woman would be a director.
0: But it seems what I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's its like this assumption that you have to like pay your dues over time and be a guy.
1: Yes. <laughs> Both of those things were true. Um, at the same time, he was an incredible mentor to me, taught me an incredible amount about the business. But yes, it was very clear to me, oh, that path was not open to me. So I, I needed to figure something else right.
0: out. Right, yeah. And I, I actually love that story because one of the things that I've learned is that there that there are so many positions. Like when we think about the industry, we think about, of course, like the front-facing, the folks we see, right? The cast, the talent. And we often hear about the directors, right? And sometimes we hear about the folks who write, whether it's screenwriting or in the writer's room in some way or shape or form. But I actually have, I have, had developed like this new deep understanding of all the folks that make a production what it is and Mm -hmm. so I think it's kind of special that that that's where you landed and and there's a way in which like as a woman we are socialized as women to like orchestrate and produce all sorts of things that it it makes sense that that you might be good at it
1: well it was yes to all those things you just said and and the thing I think people don't realize before they get into the industry is there really, as you said, there's a million jobs, like whatever your interest is, there is a job in entertainment that does that. And I, I temped for a long, uh, for a few years, once I graduated in, in all sorts of industries, and I literally had a job at a widget making factory. And I thought, oh my God, I cannot do this. Like whatever, even if I was in finance or accounting, which was not my jam at all, as long as I was doing it in the entertainment industry, it was still interesting. You know, it was still fun. There's still something so juicy and delicious about it. But yeah, many women mm-hmm. are are um, kind of directed into that producing, organizing, caretaking, that sort of role.
0: Yeah, but even within that, I've seen there's, there's certain departments in production, right? There's certain departments where women are, are directed. And so, I mean, clearly your podcast, the the other 50%, right? You're you became aware or maybe tell me when you became clearly aware of the way in which gender was shaping your experience or the experience in the industry.
1: Well, it was a it was a slow burn when I cuz I knew what I was experiencing in my career, which was I was working really hard all the time. I had to have the job for two years before I got the title. I had to go for more training all the time. When the men around me were just getting promoted doing the job and getting paid more. And I was like, hmm, I mean, it took me a long time to get to perhaps this is systemic and not my lack of ability because I finally got enough confidence to be like, oh no, I am doing a good job. So it's probably not me. At the same time, I, um, I had gotten divorced and I was the breadwinner and I was kind of sorting out, how do we negotiate gender roles when that's the situation? And I knew a lot of female executives in the business who were also the breadwinners. And so I was curious about those dynamics in marriages. And I read an article in the New York Times where it was women directors talking about lack of opportunity in the business and they were mad as hell and they weren't gonna take it anymore. And I heard, oh, that is a different tone than I have heard in this business. Something is going on. And so I thought, I want to start talking to people about all of these things and figure out what's happening. So I reached out to um, I reached out to my friends and I started talking to them and doing the podcast. And then everyone introduced me to someone else and so on and so on, like the shampoo commercial. And before I knew it, I talked to 200 people and we're really drilling down. And the conversation evolved. I started in 2016. And at the time, I mean, <laughs> all of my learning is on the record, right? It's out there. And at the beginning, it was, gosh, do you think there's do you think there's implicit bias in the entertainment industry? And we were all exploring it like, hmm, I wonder if that's true. Um, even though now it's like, of, of course there is. And it's blatant sexism. It's blatant racism. But at the time, like there wasn't a lot of At least I wasn't aware of a lot of talk about it. So we started to have those conversations. A year in, Me Too happened, which completely changed the conversation we were having in the podcast. For example, you know, I used to ask women, you know, have you experienced sexual harassment in this business? And hardly anybody wanted to talk about it on the record. They'd wait until I turned off the recorder and then they'd be like, oh, let me tell you what, let me tell you about this. But everyone was so afraid of telling the stories that had happened to them throughout their entire career. And then once Me Too happened, I would turn on the recorder and they would start with, let me tell you what I've had to deal with. So that completely changed the conversation.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's power in naming and in naming what happens in, in naming and in giving language and giving voice. Uh, because like you just said, it helps one, people make sense of what they're experiencing and two, have the courage to talk about it. Right? Because, yeah, it wasn't just implicit bias that was happening. It was systemic structural sexism. Right? Like, and one of the manifestations was women not getting into director positions. Another manifestation of all that was the rampant sexual harassment. And I would like, what's a word beyond sexual harassment, right? Like, (laughs) that was happening. Um, it was and discrimination, I think and bullying. On the basis of gender. Oh. Yeah. Absolutely. I
1: also, on my third, my third maternity leave <laughs> while at an entertainment company, I had four friends tell me their stories of either being fired, being pushed out of their job, being so unwelcome when they came back that they ended up changing careers. Four just in my circle. And so then um, I partnered up with a friend of mine, we surveyed the internet, we got 108 stories of women who this had happened to. And so we researched and wrote a book, you'll never have a baby in this town again, or you'll never have a baby in this job again, talking about um, you know, corporate pregnancy discrimination across the board. And it was astounding the stories that we heard from clerks at Hobby Lobby to attorney generals of states rampant.
0: Wow, wow. yeah. and and like you were talking about the the guy who was a great mentor, but also promptly directed you in another direction, um, it's not that's not always an individual being malicious. Sometimes it is the way that things are set up. Sometimes it is an individual being malicious. But in my first uh, with my first maternity leave, where I was working, the university where I was working, There was no, there was no policy. There had not been enough women who had needed maternity leave to create a policy. And so everyone was like piecemeal, hodgepodge, negotiating their way through it. And I mean, I'll take that because I can negotiate, but that's not fair. That's not fair to the person who can't or the person whose chair doesn't want to hear it. And you know, wants them to do what they want to do, not what's best for them and their family. Um, yeah, yeah. so it took you a while to to get the language, to get the voice to talk about sexism in the industry for sure. as a for woman sure. outside of the industry, yeah, were you aware of those dynamics?
1: um i I took so much of it personally you know i thought so much was oh it must be me i have to try harder i have to work harder it was you know i think so much of our conditioning is is it's it's us <laughs> you know that that we need to do better and be better you know i read lean in and at the time that really resonated i was like oh yes we should try harder and be more ambitious and you know very quickly then i got all that feedback and i was like oh wait a minute that no <laughs> it's a broken system it's not that we need to work harder to, no. to be like men in the workplace
0: Right, right. I remember the the push and pull of folks reading that book and trying to also talk about the systemic structural issues and people not being able to hold the critique. That was a tough. That was a tough one for people to just acknowledge.
1: Yeah. I I talked so much about lean in at work. It it very quickly started being used against me to get me to do more. I'm gonna really need you to lean into this thing that we're blah, la 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 la. I was like. I see what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Weaponizing it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So when and what made you layer your understanding of racism and how race was shaping the industry? When did that come in?
1: That actually came in very early. In that first job when I was producing commercials, we were doing a commercial for a bank and and a an atm card. And the best actress we auditioned was a black woman. And I said she's it. This is it. This is the woman. The far and away the best person we saw for the job. And the ad agency, the production company, like every the client, everyone was like, "Oh no, 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 no. That's we're not ready to do that. That's not the that's not the demographic we're going after. That's not the niche we're going to do." And I was like, "Black people don't use ATMs and debit cards. Like, what are, What are we doing? What are we doing? And, and I had the sense of this process is actually shaping the culture. Like, why don't we tell the culture, Black people bank? Like, what a wonderful opportunity. That was completely shut down. Um, so then I was like, huh, like what? I mean, ironically, now it's advertising that is doing a lot of the leading you remember that cheerios commercial with the interracial couple the interracial family um -hmm. so i think that is flipped and advertising figured out that they're in a position to really shape culture but at the time this was early 90s um it was like absolutely not that's not what we're doing so i think i i think i was aware of that early on um most of the spaces i worked in were very white but when i started doing this work i i wasn't sure where my lane was and what what i could include in my lane i knew i can i can talk about gender i'm comfortable there i have that lived experience i can talk about that all day long i know i don't have the lived experience of being a person of color can i even talk about it i think was my initial thing and i and i did I did the thing, I think a lot of white feminism does, which is if we can if we can focus on gender, that will sweep everybody up along with us. And I think we know that that doesn't work. That was very, you know, I was super naive about that. I thought we'll just get everybody talking about gender. And I, so it was through talking to people, I realized um, pretty early on doing the interviews. I was pretty um, intentional about interviewing all kinds of women. And the further I got into it, I realized if I wasn't intentional and I got to a point where publicists were coming to me and and guests were coming to me and I would just accept whoever would say, Hey, I would like to be on the podcast. When I did that, I would have a string of white women. If I wasn't intentionally going out and, and choosing who my guests were. And so I was like, Oh, that's, That's how it happens. If we're not really intentional, we're just kind of lazy about it. You know, that's what happened. Um, And I also found that interviewing people, I would ask questions. As I look back, I'm always so embarrassed about (laughs) how naive I was starting out. But I would ask people, you know, can you can you tell me which part of this was sexism, which part of this was racism in your experience? And of course, you can't separate Hmm. it. You know, it's an Mm-hmm. It's a ridiculous thing to tell me which discrimination are you facing right now? And can you pull it apart? And of course, no, you can't pull it apart. When um, guests said to me, like, I, I know they're not listening to me because I'm a woman. The fact that then when I'm direct, they call me an angry black woman. That That's racial for sure. Both things are right. happening at the same time.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's real. That's real. So like your conversation, your comment about uh, focusing on feminism and thinking that that would solve it. Right. Like that is very much what second wave feminism attempted to do. Right. Like, let's just focus on gender. Let's focus on gender. And it did so at the act of exclusion of black women, of women of color of, and and not thinking critically about class either. And, mm-hmm. you know, we saw what happened in terms of like voting rights and all sorts of things. And we know it, we know it doesn't work, but we get sold this narrative that it does because it really does benefit the power structure because it doesn't work. <laughs> like, here, try this thing. Keep trying this thing that we know doesn't work. Um, but something else you said, I want to want to spend some time on. You mentioned like as a woman, you could talk about the experience of being a woman and the lived experience and sexism because you experience it. but as a white woman, you couldn't talk about the ex- the lived experience of racism. And yes, and I actually feel like we miss an opportunity when we don't, when we, when we f- create an environment where we shame people just because they don't have a lived experience from engaging in the reflection and the conversation. Now, I know why people do it because they don't want people who are in dominant groups to take up all the space, right? To suck up all the air in the room. Totally get it. Sure. But I need you. I I want you to be thinking about not just me as a person and as a black woman in my experience, but also like actively thinking about your experience as a white woman. Like I the example I give is when we think about sexism, Me Too is a perfect example. We didn't just want women screaming this shouldn't happen. We wanted the men to also say, this needs to stop happening. And if we created an environment where they were shamed every time they said something, or you know that they didn't feel a license to have an opinion on Me Too, on rape culture, on sexual assault, on the importance of consent, then we put all the work on the women. And so I feel like in that context, people get it. Like, we need men to be on board with this. But when it comes to racism, we're really quick to be like, have a seat, know your place. Or I can't say anything because I'm white in particular, because I'm a white woman in particular, because white women as a demographic have benefited from and and sided with white supremacy in so many ways that people, you know, I I get it. Like people are angry. You feel ashamed, all of that. But we need you we need you to be thinking critically, you know? Uh,
1: Absolutely. And I say all the time, it is on men to solve sexism. It is on white people to solve racism. Get in the game. like I. And I do feel that it's not put the burden on black people to solve the white person's problem.
0: What helped you evolve to understand that you had a role in this work rather than like, oh, I can't say anything.
1: The flip for me was I know I have a role, but I'm not necessarily to be leading it. And that's a different okay. role from I had in my corporate life, or in talking about, you know, talking about sexism. Um, I knew there were a lot of people who knew a lot more than me that I needed to listen. If I had a platform to um, help those people be heard or listened to, then then that was my that was my part of it. You know, to to, to share the platform where people could talk. I know my role is to. Uh, listen, understand, and then act. Um, so, and and every now and then, I still get feedback of that I have no business doing this.
0: What do you do when you when you get that feedback? Like as a white woman doing equity and inclusion work, how do you navigate that?
1: I try to have a good hard look at what should I be taking. Personally, is there something that I have done? Is that feedback coming at me from a kind of a systemic um, experience and perception of white women are not helpful? Um, I'm just really trying to be very thoughtful and careful about it. Like I, I mean, it's hard. I guess it's really hard to. I've spent the last couple years really doing more listening and understanding than I've done in a in a long time, trying to really know what I'm talking about before I start talking about it. Thinking of, if I am talking about it, it's not just white women who are listening to me. I need to make sure that if women of color are listening to me. I'm still in integrity in talking about this the right way does
0: that make sense it makes sense i also am hearing in that like wanting to do it the right right way or knowing what i'm talking about that there's that there's this feeling like like that there's not space to figure it out together and i think that Mm. i i want us to be able to figure things out together right like as you were talking I think about things in terms of racial identity development, right? Like a person of color who is angry, just clearly is in a place in their, a moment in their lives where they're seeing plainly the way the dominant culture takes up space. Rob's opportunity has created dynamics that they have to experience barrier after barrier. Um, that if there's a person who's of a dominant identity and we're talking about race here. So someone who's white, who, you know, comes in like they know everything and doesn't create space to work collaboratively, they could be really quick to be like, and you have several seats. Like, (laughs) what do you have (laughs) to say? Right. And even if there's a white person that is attempting to work collaboratively and attempting to defer to voices, of folks who have the lived experience that fight that like, like you said, having had previous experience can still lead you to kind of like side eye and shut folks down, right? And then as a white person being dominant, having that dominant identity and being, even if you're not conscious of it in a space where you're allowed to take up space to, to be listened to, to be heard, to come into a space and have someone question you or challenge you is hard. And it's like this dance and it doesn't mean one person is always right. Or one person is always wrong. It really is a dance, which communication is. And so like, I think about this because I do a lot of like coalition work around race and I want to try to give my white colleagues some space and grace to work with me while also, yes, I need you to respect me and what I know. Because like when I work across across lines of difference with friends who like are trans or gender non-conforming or who identify on the spectrum in terms of gender or sexual orientation, I I have a posture, a similar posture to what you're saying. Like, I don't want to walk in like I know everything because I don't like cisgendered women have all sorts of power and not being attacked by legislation and people and yet like I have colleagues they, you know they want me in the room they want me supporting them and the issues but it's like how do we do that? And so I think about that dance of like our dominant and non-dominant identities and being in different spaces and taking up space and making space and deferring and listening and all that you're saying it's not easy.
1: Yes. <laughs> and uh, there are definitely situations where in a certain space, like in the in the production world, I can see a lot of the things that need to be done. And I also know that I'm in a position where I can call out some things um, in a way that perhaps will be heard, that perhaps can make a little bit of a difference. Um, and I also so... I so strongly believe it's everybody's job to do, you know, everybody has a piece and it's a, it's a matter of figuring, figuring out what your role is in the work and then just to do it.
0: Yeah. 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 You mentioned in production, sometimes being able to see clearly what needs to happen. And when you're, when you're in a position of power and you've been in the industry for as long as you have, like, you can just be like, and we need to make this happen. (laughs) Right. Um, But I was new to the industry and, and, and learning about production. And I would hear from some people, oh my gosh, this is so hard. Like thinking about equity and inclusion, like it's just one more thing. And we've got a time, we've got a tight timeline. We've got a tight budget. Like, oh, it's just so hard. And then I actually was on a set yesterday. Was that yesterday? Two days ago. And the showrunner was saying like, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. We just have to, we know what we need to do um, we, we, we just need to do it. And I was able to do it in terms of thinking about whether it's hair and makeup or, or cast or making sure that our, our crew is representative and that we have this inclusive space. He really was feeling like it's not that hard. So like, how do we have both of those experiences in the same world?
1: Well, I think it's really hard until you actually do it. And then you realize it's not. Uh, So I think there's a lot of uh, resistance. There are a lot of, there are a lot of myths that, um, and I know I talk about this all the time, there are a lot of myths that we're up against that I've been in meetings where someone will say something that is just not true and everybody just nods like, yeah, that's a real barrier. I'm like, but you made it up and it's not true. So can, can someone just say can that? You, like, that is not true.
0: Can you give me an example?
1: Uh, yes. There are no qualified people of color who can operate a camera. A uh, Bullshit. Just because your circle of friends doesn't include a Black person who can run a camera does not mean they don't exist. And there's also the... Uh, the very prevalent notion that if you're asking me to diversify my crew, you are insisting I hire unqualified people. Therefore, you're inserting a lot of risk into my production, which is um, a lot of money very quickly and I don't have time and I don't have time to do any of this. And then people nod at as if that assumption is true, that people are just not qualified. And so that prevents people from yeah, that con- even making an effort.
0: Yeah. That conflation of diversity and representation equaling unqualified, like putting those two things together, yeah. that assumption. We see that in the education sphere a lot too. Like oh you 100%. want me to yeah, hire someone. Affirmative or- action.
1: Yeah. Why should I hire an unqualified person just because Pe- they're black? <laughs> no one's saying that. That's nonsense. No one
0: ever said that. <laughs>
1: no one ever said that. <laughs>
0: nonsense. Yes. <laughs>
1: But people nod like, oh, that's a real thing. You talk to people who are very intentional about doing the work and expanding their networks and hiring all kinds of people and finding them. And turns out it is uh, not that hard, but it takes the intention to do it. And you actually do have time. I mean, I'm sure it feels like you don't have time, but you're calling 10 people to see if they're available. You're calling 10 people anyway. Perhaps half of those people could, you know have some variety in their gender and their race.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, from talking to different showrunners and and um, line producers, like it's understanding the benefit in the sense that like if you're a showrunner and you need a, and you are writing a show that has people from different perspectives, like you don't actually want a homogenous team, whether it's they all came through the same program or they all are this, have the same lived experience in terms of gender or sexual orientation or whatever the identity group is like they're
1: all you related you want a
0: room huh? oh really <laughs> yeah right like that doesn't serve you it usually does not serve you so that's something that i i have found helping people realize oh so you're not just you're not just telling me i can't ju- it just Hire all my friends. you're saying that maybe for the creative process, it actually would lead to a better product if I looked beyond my friends, my the people I know, the people I worked with on that last show because then we end up recreating this bubble and and yeah. the gates that were that were closed continue to be closed and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter because then you have more experience with this person and think that that just means that they're better when it's actually like you like you said haven't expanded your network to see all the talent that's there
1: and the thing is once you start expanding your network a little bit you meet one person they bring five more into your network and so it it builds upon itself if you just make the effort
0: so making the effort and being intentional like so this is where If folks are listening and they are not in the industry at all, the entertainment industry, this is still relevant. Like I think oftentimes people are like, "Oh, what's different?" Like working in Hollywood. I was like, Ah, there are some things that are different, but there are some things that are just the same. (laughs) And so when you're talking about hiring to to broaden your network and to do it before you're in that position to hire, so you're not having to do all the scrambling. Come you know time to hire, or you're doing it but you're also telling whoever is helping you build your pool, your expectations. So they can also be expanding their network or their contacts or know who they need to be in touch with, which schools or programs or whatever they need to be in touch with. Like you make it known that you want a pool that's representative of all sorts of different identities. You do your personal work and then you have folks who are helping you hire also source people from all different corners of the work.
1: Yes. And then the really important piece is, I mean, the the other big thing entertainment needs to address is the culture on set. So so that people stay, first of all. But also, it's historically been um, a fairly toxic environment, really top-down direction and control. Um, People come in at the bottom, historically have been treated very badly um, until they can work their way up in the system and then... That has perpetuated, you know, when people get some power, then they treat the the next round of people coming in terribly so that there is somewhat of a revolution going on to change that culture completely, which is only going to help the entire industry. But it's still true that when people have had a pleasant experience on set where they felt Um, that they were treated kindly and they felt included and they felt like they could be who they are and they didn't feel like they had to do a lot of covering or deny that they had a family or deny their sexuality or, you know, all of that. It's still so notable that they will talk about it. Like, yes, I did this project and it was an incredibly inclusive set. It felt wonderful. What a pleasant experience. It's still remarked upon because I think it's still so rare.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right. Like there's this there's this interesting exercise that um I would do with folks in the workshops where I would conduct I would ask them about, you know, how included they felt and then ask explicitly for examples of what someone did to make them feel included. And it's hard for folks to to articulate cuz they'll say, "Oh, this was a great experience," and they'll have a lot to say about the toxic experience that they had, the toxic environment they were in and what happened. And those things stick with us. They stick with us. And like you're saying, they're they're far too common. And so people often go to, oh, well, this happened and this was awful. Like, let's not do that. But I also think that intentionality that we just talked about also is relevant here, like to intentionally engage in behaviors that foster inclusion, right? So not just not telling certain jokes or, you know, doing things that ostracize people, but like, what are you actively doing to cultivate that environment of inclusivity of, of, of equity? Like I hear you, I see you, I'm not going to skip over you for a stretch opportunity to, to maybe get you ready for that either promotion in on this production or ready for the next step in the next production.
1: It's historically an apprenticeship business and the last several years, there's been such a boom and people have moved up very quickly and we've lost a bit of that apprenticeship of it. And to really, the, the producers who are doing this really well are getting to know all the people on their crews beyond learning their name, which is where the bar is, right? So low, learn people's names, but are really talking to people and talking about what are your aspirations and where do you want to go? Like, is this the job you want? Or are you really looking for a job Three steps up or two steps over and then helping to nurture them into opportunities to then be able to grow into the career that they want. And there are producers who are very consciously and intentionally doing this, which is the work that everybody should really be doing in this business to get, to get everybody in and to get them where they want to be. There's a company called the light and they do, uh, they do commercials. They do digital, um, digital media, short form content. Becky who runs the the light uh, is very consciously trying to change the culture of production. And I've I've learned a lot from her just as far as setting uh, setting the tone on the set. She's very intentional about hiring people from all sorts of backgrounds, but then their first day on set, she welcomes them with their particular coffee order, with their particular milk name tags with pictures and pronouns. She has a meeting at the beginning of the day of how do you want to feel at the end of this day? And everybody goes around and says, you're always very surprised by the things that people say, how they wanna feel. One time she did it and, and this grip from Brooklyn and I may be getting the story wrong, but the essence of it is he said, I just want to feel loved. <laughs> and that the whole room was just melted. It was like, ah. Oh. And so everyone's mission that day was to help that guy feel loved by the end of the day. You know, they they nominate an MVP of the production day every day to, to really call out and recognize people who've done a good job to make everyone else's job easier. And she's doing all of these intentional things. And the feedback, oh, and the other thing is at the end of the year she takes the company's profits and gives everyone a bonus whoever worked with her during the year becky morrison <laughs> is her name she's incredible but she's doing that really culture changing work inside the industry that i think everybody can take a note on
0: that's helpful yeah i was i was just going to ask for examples and that's a great one and those are different behaviors that again can translate outside of a production in terms of creating and fostering an inclusive team regardless of of what industry you're in. And that's part of why I really enjoy, have enjoyed doing this work um, because it's Hollywood and it's, oh, it's sexy. It's cool. Like whether, you know, you work on a certain show or with a certain company and it's neat, but it's also like, it's some of the same work that I've done in other industries. And it's like, oh yeah, kind of this industry puts its pants on one leg at a time too. <laughs> Still people. Still people figuring out how to people. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is is there anything else that you want us to know about your journey that you want to share with folks who are either thinking about getting into the industry or, or curious about production um, or, yeah, like what it's like to do equity and inclusion work inside of it?
1: Anyone thinking about getting in, I would actually, I would actually shamelessly plug uh, the Catch a Break podcast, which is the insider's guide to breaking into and navigating Hollywood, where it's really aimed at um, that. I'm in partner with a company called Catchlight Studios. They are very intentional about uh, doing this work on their productions. I went to a premiere of theirs last night and they, the producers, uh, Jeanette and Yolanda, got up at the beginning and and gave the speech about what some of the many things they were so proud of, of this film. Um, It was a first time black woman director, did an incredible job. They talked about a huge percentage of their department heads, like eight or 10 were either women or people of color or both. Many of those department heads were departments that are traditionally so male-dominated. Their transport coordinator was a Latina woman. Their, um, ha- their head of sound was a woman. And they just went down the list of traditionally male-dominated department heads that were women and uh, women of color and people of color. And that was one of the biggest things they were proud of in producing this incredible film that they produced. And they do it by just by being very intentional about where they look for people, how they hire people, what kind of environment they they set on set. And as part of the Catch a Break podcast, because we, we partner on that, I interviewed a lot of these department heads who worked on this film. Every last one of them said it was the most diverse film I've ever worked on. It was the most inclusive environment I've ever worked on. Great experience. 10 out of 10, I would work with them anytime. And it it just... Highlights the point for me that it just takes intention. It can be done. Everyone should be doing it. And I think one of that one of the one of the obstacles is that I think there are a lot of people who want to, and just don't know what to do. Don't know what their next step is. Mm-hmm. And so I see that mm-hmm. as as part of my work. Of okay, you're there. You're ready. You want to do it. Here's some very simple steps that you can do to do it. And I think giving people mm-hmm. the roadmap. I think will go a long way because there's been a lot of talk about let's do this work but not a lot of and here is how and here are the simple steps that you could take
0: well i I appreciate you sharing with us like if folks want to follow you and learn more we know they can catch your podcast um catch a break and the other 50 percent. how else can they follow you
1: um i am on instagram uh under other 50 percent podcast and under Julie Harris Oliver. I'm also on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter, although less and less on the Twitter. Gotta be honest, I think, <laughs> I think I'm yeah. think i probably going away from the Twitter. Um, yeah, those are all the places that they can find me. My DMs are open.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Julie.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to talk to you.
0: Same, same. And I hope you folks at home learned something about not only production, but also kind of the journey of being a white woman doing equity inclusion work. It's real and I think it's important for us to be in conversation with each other about those experiences and to practice working collaboratively and pushing each other, giving each other feedback, um, listening to each other so that we can continue to, to make progress and work together. Uh, So you can follow me. I'm Dr. Kira Banks across all the socials. And thanks for joining me on Raising Equity.